0: All right, we got this counterpoint brought to you by PizzaVille, 4167-363636, or PizzaVille.ca. I'm done my horrific dieting, and I'm going Yay! to dive in this weekend. <laughs> and that would be the voice of Kim Wright, principal over at Wright Strategies. Happy birthday to you. Thank, thank, thank you for joining you. us. Thank and you. we've got a new voice on the show, David Tarrant. Is it Tarrant or Tarrant? Tarrant works fine. I think Tarrant is a nice... French zeal to it, no?
1: If it adds to my credibility, you can call me whatever you want.
0: (laughs) All right. Vice President of National Strategic Communications with Enterprise Canada is what I will call you. Good to have you both. Well, it's a very big day in politics, uh, but I think a lot bigger than a lot of uh, folks had imagined because it wasn't just a change of face. It was change of like faces up to 20 uh, different changes today in um, it's, it's not even a shuffle. It is a reset. Um, A lot of old guard PCs have been demoted or shuffled around, and the most controversial ministries now have new faces. And so some will look at this as a reset. Others will look at this as a mutiny waiting to happen, and others will say this is a smart move. But when Doug Ford was asked, you know, doesn't the buck stop with you, here was his response.
1: I look at continuous improvement. It starts with me. Every one of our cabinet ministers, I feel, have done a good job, but we can always do a better job. I can always do a better job uh, as well. And uh, we're going to.
0: I'll let you um, have the first kick at this, Dave. I mean, look, I I know a lot of the people that have been moved around. I happen to think Rod Phillips is a terrific finance uh, minister choice. Me too. Here's how I look at it. And I'm not giving Ford any excuses, but they cobbled together everything so, so quickly in that barn burning dumpster fire of a campaign last year (laughs) because of the Patrick Brown. He got stuck with people he didn't pick, select, didn't work with, didn't know a lot about. Now he knows what they're like a year later. That's not an excuse, but now they've got new people in place. Does this give him a reset?
1: Yeah, I, I think the first part about it is uh, that quote of from D- Premier Ford, Doug, is actually, you know, that's classic uh, Doug Ford. He's very self-critical, and, and he's very accountable for uh, decisions he makes, including the, the mistakes he makes. And and, and, and and so it starts from there when people evaluate why would you make this change or that change? He actually does take accountability from the top. Um, I, I, I would say... Listen, um, the government. The government came in with a very ambitious agenda, and they've been working around the clock on it. Um, you know, and if someone wants to focus on, say, you know, uh, uh, the soap opera machinations—who goes up, who goes down—and and that's their right to do. Uh, but at the same time, I think the one of the kind of the undercovered parts of the story is while all this activity was going on, there are people kind of below the radar who are doing amazing work. Uh, Some of these caucus members were promoted into really senior roles. Stephen Lecce is the new Minister of Education. Ross Romano, colleges and Training and university. Doug Downey as the Attorney General. These are people who weren't in the headlines every day. But during all this activity, we're doing amazing work. And this and this shuffle kind of is recognizing uh, uh, that behind the headlines, there were some great things happening.
0: All right. But does it turn the page? I mean, it gives the opposition. The opposition's had a lot to chew on, Kim, because there's been a lot of chaos. And that chaos was created because the struggle for the Ford government was messaging. They could not punch through the noise and the left made a lot of noise.
2: Look, their their two problems were communications, yes, but more importantly, planning or lack of planning. They went right from cabinet swearing in to a marathon session where there was the, oh, by the way, we're going to slash Toronto City Council in half and rip up the Constitution because we're going to put out the notwithstanding clause for the first time ever. Uh, you know they've had some struggles. Not in you know, notwithstanding uh, all of all of the budget and and things that they approved and things around cannabis and some good things that they did, uh, they also went after kids with autism. I wouldn't say that. I don't think it's no, fair but, to say but, went after. What but, they did though was but, what here, here's fundament, the way. fundamentally shift how people were getting onto a wait list. Ripping up the wait list and creating an unnecessary set of chaos for people who are already struggling for no apparent reason and without really a plan that was well thought out. There's no question it was it was a. It was a failed and follow. follow. As as a as a conservative uh, consultant once said, if they can go after kids with autism, what makes you all so special? So there's all of these underpinnings that created this uh, nervous energy amongst all sorts of stakeholders. What the premier did today. Was actually try to address some of that. Bringing Rod Phillips in is a great stakeholder relations. Bringing Stephen Lecce into education, which has also been a bit of a dumpster fire. Oh, entirely. But Stephen Lecce is an extraordinary communicator. That man has never seen a message box he has not built a house upon. Mm -hmm. And the same with Todd Smith. Todd Todd Smith Smith will be a... That's the problem with
0: with McLeod was too heavy-handed with autism, and Todd Smith is more gentle Todd Smith
2: is the Mr. Fixer. He is the John Baird, if you will, of the of the provincial. So in other uh, words, uh, well, let me ask you guys who who get brought in to fix these. (laughs) So do you see
0: a complete overhaul of autism? Because it was a file really badly handled, not because I believe that they were going after kids, but that it is an impossibly hard file to um, fix after 15 years of of government doing (laughs) zero
1: I don't. Th- I think there's no debate about that, Alex. I think uh, in addition to you and, and Kim, uh, Premier Ford has said that if he had one do-over, he, this would kids be the file. He, he would have done done things differently on that file.
0: So, does the cabinet shuffle and putting Todd Smith in mean a green light that this thing's getting overhauled? Mm-hmm. Because Amy Fee is the <clears throat> parliamentary assistant. She's got two kids with autism, so this is a very personal
1: file I, to her. I, I, and having having spoken with with Miss Fee on this before, absolutely. And there are other members of the caucus who have. Uh, who have uh, relationships uh, w- with with family members have, who have uh, autism as well? Um, I would say this: the original goal, the original goal of the autism change, and we're not here you know, to relitigate that, was that there were a lot of families who were getting nothing under the previous plan the liberals had, and and that problem still remains. Uh, and and so the goal that the government had from day one is a situation where you know three quarters of families with children with autism are getting nothing. Is is fundamentally unfair and unsustainable, and, and so I think that goal is not going to change. Uh, uh, how you go about uh, uh, putting in place that solution? Uh, I mean, the funding envelope has gone up, as we all know, but it, it, it went up months ago. Um, that you know, is there better ways of implementing it? Uh, for sure, uh, but the goal and the goal, and quite frankly, Lisa Mcleod and Premier Ford both both said, remains the same. There should not be two classes of families with auti- with children with autism in this in this province, and and that needs to be fixed.
0: Let me just jump into this next topic, because i got a bunch of topics I want to get through, so I don't want to um, cut them out. Um, the other issue uh, is something that you all know, is the Bill 66. And this is, uh, despite cries of having no money, which we've heard in Toronto, Toronto Council voted yesterday against the provincial law, which would have given them permission to open up construction contracts. And this could have saved Toronto a lot of money. And they invited, you know, they stayed, you know, with giving their union buddies these contracts. Meanwhile, Hamilton has now voted in favor of it. You're not happy Kim.
2: So, in disclosure to listeners, I do work with the Carpenters Union. In fact, I was in uh, in Hamilton on this issue. This notion that there is gobs of savings and gobs of new bidders that can can work on this. The City of Toronto has always had an agreement that any contractor that wants to do business in the City of Toronto can what they need to do on on things like electrical workers, or operating engineers or um, the uh, carpentry work that they need to have an agreement with on those particular things. This has always been less than 2% of the overall cost. But what's wrong with competition? That's, it's not. I, that's but all. Alex, there is competition. That's but within the a small group, of it Within a small and, and group. And this has been a deal that has not just been in place because of John Tory. This has been in place for generations in the city of Toronto. that make ha- it right. And, ha- and, and, and it has never been about quantifying uh, an overall cost of what that labor agreement component has been what the, what bill 66 did was rip up collective agreements and pu- make it pushed on to the municipalities to wear that there's going to cr- that's going to create all sorts of legal challenges but it really comes down to what are your values. If you value health and safety, if you value apprenticeship training, which is earning while you learn. And every, st- every study that has shown that apprenticeship completion rates are higher, 20% higher uh, for unionized environments than non-unionized environments. Those types of things, those social investments are what makes a city and what makes a community well, and that's and that's been part of the benefits of having these agreements. Well,
0: you know what? There's one thing that uh, John Tory can never do, uh, nor can Joe Cressy, which would be going out and telling people are going to die because they have no money, because they had the opportunity to at least open up competition. Whether they stayed with the same unions is not, you know, they could have
2: done that. But Alex, they, people were going to di- have, have died on non-unionized construction sites. No, no, that's th- why the, the union saying, movement has been the, so impressively the henny, successful. The henny, henny
0: penny crying that we have no money the city can't complain that it doesn't have any because they could have opened this up and they chose not to.
1: I and mean, Alex, I mean, we've also done some work with people involved in this debate uh, in, in fairness as well. What, what I can go back and say, you know, why this debate's taking place in the first place was when Bill 66 was originally being discussed uh, by the provincial government. Um, a lot of discussions came, took place and you actually had some pretty entrenched people on both sides. And you have one side saying, hey, there's money to be saved here. Uh, and, and and that's, you know, which is all well and good. But then you add another side saying, this is our livelihood, right? We, we do this for a living. This is our livelihood that's being disrupted here. And and uh, who made a very convincing case that, you know, beyond the, the you can talk about this union leader or this council or not, but individual workers. And so what the government decided to do was, hey, you know what? This is actually a decision that's best made on a local by local level. That's what Bill 66 is. And whether it's Toronto or Hamilton or Waterloo or anywhere else, uh, uh, local leaders will, will make that decision. But but the key part about it is um, the challenge that should come is that if a council says we don't want to do this because it's too disruptive to people's jobs and people's lives, then the challenge is on them to say, okay, now go find a less disruptive way of finding those savings. And I think that's where councillors should be held account- accountable and, and mayors should be held accountable.
0: 100%. All right, guys, I've got to leave it there for this half because we are way late. Um, When we come back, we will pick up the issue of Elections Canada. (laughs) Elections Canada scrapping a plan that was Never should have been started. So we'll pick that up in just a couple of minutes. This uh, part of your counterpoint brought to you by Pizzaville 416 736 3636 or pizzaville.ca. Keep it clean and easy and order yourself a pie. We've got Kim Wright and we've got David Tarrant joining us tonight here. Let's talk a little bit about this gun buying program. The uh, city of Toronto is so broke that uh, they were able to spend 750000 to buy more than 2200 long guns and 900 handguns it's all part of this buyback program of getting guns off the streets but you know they didn't buy back the illegal guns that were used let's say at the raptor uh, parade or the party on uh, the winning night of the fina- the finals the bottom line is this will make a lot of people feel good sure they got some guns off the street but this is not a solution to a problem no one will admit actually exists
2: I, anyone, I don't imagine there are very many people who agno- don't acknowledge we have a gun problem in the city. Well, they do, think, but they won't address the causes of gang violence. There's a gun
1: crime problem yeah, in there the is,
2: city. There is a gun crime problem. There is a guns and gangs problem. Uh, and those things need to be addressed. And it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. This, there is a whole raft of things That everyone needs to start wrapping their heads around the socioeconomic housing shortages, uh, opportunities for people to get into better circumstances. A cultural, some cultural situations that has made it uh, where people think it's okay and cool, and, all and there's the rest a problem
0: with how we investigate and, it and, and what we can and do all and what of we those give the And tools we to
2: need do. to have those, as I've said repeatedly on the show and in other places. We need to have a grown up and honest conversation about how do we get at guns uh, in the city. There should never have been a point in my life that I was sitting in a restaurant and watched gunmen come in mm-hmm. and I had to go under and dive under a table. Yep. That should never have happened in the city of Toronto. That happened to me. That's happened to lots of other people and it's unfortunately in a lot of communities across Toronto their day-to-day life. Hey look, we never
0: should have seen this at 4 o'clock in the afternoon at a parade with 2 million people. But again, and I agree with uh, Kim, there are a lot of things that need to happen yeah, yeah. that have been ignored. But sure. you definitely have to get to the guns and the and the gangs. And the only way you can do that is if you create the teams to do the intelligence and investigative work that they have to do.
1: Bingo. There's two words in the label gun criminal. And if Feels good to talk about the guns, but you need to talk about the criminals as well. And the fact of the matter is, so much of the gun crime in Toronto—you uh, you talk to the police—and and it's been driven by, by by criminal cartels and gangs who are involved in drug trafficking and human trafficking. These are some of the worst people in the world. Uh, and they're not going to be, uh, you know, willingly selling their guns in a buyback to the police, and nor are they going to yeah, be none honoring... None of those guns, by the way, will turn up as guns yeah. that were used in crime. None of them. <laughs>
2: well, but they're off the, you know. It has happened, and they're off the street. <laughs> and, and, and so
1: sure, I'll it, take you to dinner if, if I lose this and, and so, sure, you, we want to talk about social programs. There's absolutely a, a, a place for that. But at but the end of the day, you know, if you want to actually get serious about, about taking on gun crime, you need to start by getting serious about crime. Uh, and, and sentencing. And sentencing and enforcement. And, and too many people get squeamish about that uh, because there's various social agendas at play. But if you're actually serious about getting gun crime off the streets, get the gun criminals off the streets.
0: That's agreed, agreed. Right. Uh, Elections Canada has scrapped plans to use social media influencers to persuade young Canadians to get out and vote in the uh, fall election. They released this list of 13 influencers this That's afternoon. Good. And this is like athletes, actors, models. And then all of a sudden it was cancelled. It was like, what? It's It's gone. And the chief electoral officer said that a final vetting turned up partisan activity. Oh, shock of all shocks. Case in point, one of those influencers hired was Ashley uh, Callingbull, who was crowned Miss Universe in uh, 2015, and where she made it a point to say, you know, I urge all First Nations people in Canada to vote in the upcoming election and get out Prime Minister Harper. So she's very partisan, obviously, uh, against the Conservatives. And I would suspect, if they're all artists and whatever, a lot of them were likely partisan. But the fact is, they were all paid. Mm -hmm. These people were all paid 50 grand-something um before they even did the work this is nuts
1: alex it's i'm delighted you're bringing this up it's an underreported story and it's absolutely outrageous because what the uh, what the uh, what Elections Canada has been doing with the blessing of the Trudeau government is becoming essentially a partisan actor. Yeah. It's absolutely outrageous that the referee, the yeah. umpire, Elections Canada is who enforces the rule is actually paying money to people who actually have a partisan interest. It like it, it is is literally trying to shift the referee and even if they were perfect with identifying these so-called influencers the fact of the matter is every political party in Canada knows certain demographic groups vote one way over another way sure. and if you're picking people who appeal to a certain group that happen to vote a certain for a certain party guess what Elections Canada is still putting its thumb on the scales. This is an underreported, quite frankly, abuse of power. Um, it, it's, I, I view it in the same train as the as the, the attempted to change Canada's election laws a couple of years ago, and the 500 million dollar media package now, where they're trying and to find also subtle... also
0: sending w- Election Canada to watch pr- yeah. which premier is going yeah. where in the country. Yeah, it,
1: it, 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 the, the subtle ways they are trying to change the rules to uh, for partisan favor, quite frankly, for one party, and that's the Trudeau Liberals, is an underreported story, and and. On I, I'm delighted that Elections Canada realized the error of their, of their ways, but it should never have gotten this far in the first place.
0: Yeah, t- I got to be honest, Kim. I'm not sure they can put this toothpaste back in the tube because they are supposed to be absolutely neutral. And I have just in the last year with the SNC stuff, with the with the Privy Council stuff, with Michael, whatever his name is, creepy guy. Uh, all of this stuff, Elections Canada does not look neutral.
2: No, they don't. My bigger concern is, and frankly, where I'd rather Elections Canada spend their money is getting back to doing proper enumeration so our voters' list are actually accurate. Mm-hmm. That encourages people to well, vote. I don't know. And you enfranchises know, them. Third-party
0: people getting foreign funding. You we know. we
2: also saw in the last election that there were ridings, especially uh, up in northern Ontario, that have a high uh, population uh, on um, Native reserves yeah. that didn't have enough ballots. They ran out of ballots because they assumed not enough people would sh- that that amount of people wouldn't show up. These types of disenfranchisement moves is really what. Elections Ontario should get to the root of not trying to be the cool kids on Instagram. I they mean, leave that to one party over others, yeah. rock the votes and yeah. all of those other types of things, if that's what happens. But influencers, they cost money, they're rarely non-partisan. Apparently it's the best job, you don't have to do, do it. And for <laughs> goodness sakes, like, let's just get to actually properly understanding who the electorate is yep. and getting them, giving them the franchise to vote. Uh, uh, and let yeah.
1: Elections Canada go back to calling balls and strikes. That's yeah. their job.
2: It is,
0: and they're not doing it. All right, guys, I got to leave it there. I'm very, very late, but I thank you for sharing your Thursday. Kim Wright, Dave Tarrant, we'll have you back. This part of CounterPoint has been brought to you by PizzaVille. 4167-363636 or PizzaVille.ca. They will get you locked, loaded, and ready to go.